0: This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own Self Work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I began Self Work three years ago. In order to try to reach those of you who already are very comfortable with psychological and emotional issues, maybe are in therapy but want some more information, maybe to those of you who've been recently diagnosed with depression or anxiety and are looking for answers, but also to those of you who may carry around some stigma about mental health treatment but are just curious enough to want to listen to a podcast and see what this therapy thing is really all about. Before we get started, however, today, I want to let you know that if any of you are wanting to pick up Perfectly Hidden Depression, my new book on the perfectionism that can cloak depression and actually be quite dangerous, it's on sale now on Amazon. I didn't know what was going on. Of course, you know, with my general pessimistic spirit about the book, I thought maybe, oh my gosh, something bad has happened, but no, my agent informs me that this is something that Amazon does every now and then to boost sales. But it's about 25% off. So head over to Amazon and pick up Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. But now on to the 157th episode of Self Work. Today we're going to talk about fear, plain old, unadulterated fear. Discomfort, unease, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's easier to talk about fear or see it when it's attached to something noxious or destructive, like you fear heights or you fear conflict. Maybe you've had bad experiences with it, so you fear it. But what happens when we fear changing positively? We'll go over the reasons, and I could think of five of them. They are fear of the loss of stability, fear of emotional vulnerability, fear that the past behavior might actually return or you're basically fear of the ambiguity of change fear and shame that you didn't change before and so you stay stuck and fear about relationship change we'll talk about all five of those our listener email is from a woman from south africa who took advantage of the speak pipe experience that's now on the website and left me a message about her struggle to want to be with her family as opposed to her spouse and she asks is there something wrong with that I also received a constructive criticism this week, which I want to address with all of you, because I think maybe my words came across a little too nonchalantly for this particular listener. And if they did to you, I want to talk with you about it. So thanks so much for being here. Settle down and relax, but not too much if you're driving. And we'll talk about fear. You know, people usually come to therapy in order to make change happen. In fact, in grad school, they told us, generally speaking, that therapists are called agents of change. We look to see what may be getting in your way of making a change you desire, or maybe you're sticking with an old habit that you'd like to break, or perhaps you're too depressed or too anxious to even have the mental and emotional energy to affect change. But why wouldn't positive change be something that everybody would rush out to do? Actually, I guess if they could, I'd be out of a job. We talked in a recent episode about finding your motivation. I think that was 154. But here we're talking about actually confronting the fears you have, working with them instead of against them. That's what I mean by confront. So the first one is fear of losing your stability. When you decide to make a change, no matter how easy or difficult it is, you have to discover a safe balance between the desired change and a need for stability. Think about the old game of pick-up sticks, or the more recent one, Jenga. The strategy to win involves a careful assessment of what stick or Jenga piece you can remove without the entire thing crashing down around you. I actually was never very good at that game. (laughs) To illustrate this point, let's talk about a woman named Laura. She's a great example of beginning to change new behaviors and finding out that you feel actually more unstable at first. Laura was about 50. She'd been in an emotionally abusive relationship for years. She took the blame over and over again for the conflicts between her and her husband, just in order to keep the peace. She focused instead on raising her children, volunteering for several organizations in the community, and running an interior design firm that specialized in remodeling. She often did pro bono work for those not being able to afford her services and was known citywide for her generosity. Now, she was working on perfectly hidden depression, and she'd chosen to challenge her habit of taking on too much responsibility. So she came in talking about that, and she said, I went to my PEO meeting this month. They were asking for volunteers to run the upcoming silent auction, to ask for items and get them all ready, and literally, I sat on my hands. She then went on to discuss what had happened when she left the meeting. I got in my car, and all of a sudden there were tears in my eyes. I felt ashamed. Other people are just as busy as I am. I should have taken my share of the responsibility. Then I stopped myself. This was the change I wanted. Why do I always feel like I've got to do more? The answer to that question became clear the more we talked. Laura was an adopted child, treasured and pampered by her parents. Yet they would also, not viciously, but frequently remind her that she was very lucky. But if she hadn't been adopted by them, she wouldn't have all the privilege she enjoyed now. The more she processed this, she learned that her worth didn't reside in her. It was dependent on their generosity. And actually, there was no arguing with those facts. They'd adopted her. But she thanked her parents over and over for the adoption. So it was only when Laura sat on her hands that she began to try to look for the reasons why she was always needing to constantly care for others or invest inexhaustible energy into proving that actually she was deserving, valuable, and that she was grateful. But this was actually initially destabilizing for Laura. She had to cope with the feelings that came with that realization. So you don't have to fear instability, but you can decide when you begin to change to do it slowly and with compassion for yourself, changing piece by piece, whatever you want to, and then replacing it with another more positive change. But you don't want to go too fast. You don't want to become actually unstable. Now, this leads us very naturally to the second fear, fear of emotional vulnerability. These really go hand in hand, because as you slowly choose to act differently, you can begin to trace back where these more difficult behaviors began. Let's say you want to stop emotional eating. You recognize that you eat when you're upset. You do it to gain some comfort. My personal favorite are potato chips. So you come up with a plan to help you stop that behavior. Some kind of reward system or journaling before you eat, something I often ask my patients to do. At least just write down, what do I think this food is going to do for me that I can't do for myself? Or let's say you change your shopping patterns or you join Weight Watchers or some other kind of eating support group. And you actually can see that you're beginning to change the pattern of your relationship with food. But what comes along with it? All of those feelings that you were suppressing by eating. They want to be more openly dealt with and that can be hard because you're actually feeling them perhaps even for the first time. I remember another woman I worked with who had given up everything she was addicted to and she was quite proud of that because she had substance abuse, meaning multiple substance abuse, but she couldn't give up weed. Money was tight, however, and she needed to stop. She was quite proud of stopping the other things. She'd shown herself just how self-disciplined she could be and how much better she felt physically. But this particular change eluded her. It wasn't until we talked about what comfort smoking pot actually brought her that her fear was more clear. Pot had become her best friend. She could count on it. It was always there and that's why she used it nightly. She lived alone without pets and she could see that smoking weed was a way to fill the time, a way to structure the several hours from the time she got home until she went to bed. So when she stopped, or at least slowed down, she found a lot of sadness and loneliness that had to be addressed. We came up with a plan of how she could deal with these emotions that had been taken care of by her old behavior, that behavior that now she wanted to decrease. Let's take another behavior. Let's say you tend to lie a lot. You have to go back and understand why you began lying. I had a patient tell me just a couple of days ago that she had lied often because the punishment that she received from parents was so bad that she would say that she hadn't done something that she'd really done. She was trying to escape the punishment. Going back and looking at things with compassion for yourself can be hard, but it's so rewarding in the long run and helps you confront that fear of emotional vulnerability. Here's the third fear. Fear of the return of the behavior, the ambiguity you have to face, and actually, even since I just recorded the intro, I realized it's also fear of failure. So what do I mean by these fears? You've found the courage to begin changing, that's hard enough to do, and you've done it. You've gone in a direction that feels much better to you, and you're even enjoying the benefits of that change now. But the fear can come back. But you're not real sure how hard it's going to be to maintain that behavior. You fear it returning. You fear not quite knowing how you're going to steer this boat. And you can fear failure. Another way of looking at this is when you were doing the old unwanted behavior, let's say the emotional eating again, you knew the consequences of that behavior and you lived with them. Maybe you made yourself throw up or maybe you overexercised or maybe... You just shamed yourself, but you could live with all those things, even though you were doing something that was undesired or even hurtful. So when you begin to change, you prove you can change. You just don't know what it's going to take to maintain the behavior, and you can fear failure. Let's use a really practical example. Let's say someone has an old car that never runs well in the winter, but they know how to fix it, and they limp through the cold months. In the spring, the car does much better. But if they could afford it, why wouldn't they look for a car that's more reliable? They may say, oh, it's too much money. But sometimes I think people fear the change itself. They'll say, well, Matt new car probably had problems too, and maybe I couldn't fix them. They're a little afraid of the fresh challenge, the ambiguity, and the fear of failure. When you make changes, even desired ones, they bring something new You have to learn to deal with the unfamiliar, and maybe even again, because all these are tied together, feeling a little vulnerable. This dynamic applies to so much change. You'll stay unhappy or stuck because you fear the unfamiliar. But what you can learn when you have the courage to do it is you can give yourself space and time to get accustomed to the unfamiliar, and guess what? It eventually becomes what is familiar. Let's move on to the fourth fear. It's the fear of shame or maybe even reprisal. Now, we'll talk more about relationship fears in a second. But I've seen this happen a lot with couples, and I think it's most clear when talking about it in that context. Say you've never been one to spend money, and it's been a huge sore spot between you and your spouse. So you begin to lighten up, actually. You've gotten a raise. You've decided that you're not going to live forever. And so you surprise her by planning a vacation just for the two of you. But what sometimes can happen, which is not good, is that she can say, well, this is wonderful, but I had decided after all these years, you weren't capable of doing something like this. And now I see that you are, and that makes me furious. So you can just go by yourself. (laughs) This is definitely relationship sabotage, by the way, and is far from a more desired, healthier response. There's probably a lot of resentment built up and it's okay to be angry or confused and talk about that resentment, but it's not okay to cut off communication about when someone is trying to positively change. But you don't need a partner to do this. You can do this to yourself. You can sabotage the change by saying, why couldn't I have accomplished this before? You can feel so embarrassed or angry about that that you can even allow yourself to feel like a failure because now you've shown yourself that change is possible and you start shaming yourself. So instead of shame, what else can you do? Let's say you're an alcoholic and now you're in recovery. Let's say you've yelled at your children a lot and now you've taken an anger management course and you don't yell anymore. So what can you do? If apologies are warranted, make them. If amends need to be made, state or do them. If it takes a while for others to trust that these new changes will stick, allow that time to be. If you take action about what you feel ashamed of, then you can let go of that shame because it will only do damage to you for you to bring it into the present. Here's the last fear fear of relationship change or rejection. What this sounds like is, let's say you want to change drinking. So you tell yourself, I'm not sure how my friends will handle me not drinking anymore. I'd have to make a bunch of new friends, or I wouldn't be wanted if I weren't the party girl. So you can hear that you fear the change because you don't know what it will do to your relationships. Let's say you decide not to gossip. Maybe you change churches or you go back to school. What will happen in your relationships? What will your family think, or how will they respond? If this positive change for you is a sudden or unexpected change, then it's likely to take some time for your close relationships to adjust. But it's such a shame if you maintain a bad habit because you fear how your relationships will change. As many of you know, I like to talk about what you can do about it. So I think you can mediate some of this by talking about the change before it happens. I see this a lot with gastric bypass surgery patients. The surgeon will focus on the major way it's going to change you. But you also need to look at the very significant ways it can change your relationship, because most likely you and your partner have socialized by going out to eat. Even though the medical and psychological benefits of that surgery can be enormous, it can lead to all kinds of relationship problems. So you can do your best to prepare your family, your spouse, your children, If all of you like to go to McDonald's and eat french fries, then that's not an activity that you're going to be able to partake in. So how do you talk about that and what do you replace it with? Of course, sometimes changes are so dramatic that relationships really struggle. And then you have to decide, is the positive change so positive that you'll stand where you need to and hope the other person will come your way? Give them time and space. But many healthy relationships can swing with these changes that are positive for one and just may require some moderation or alteration. With enough communication and time, the relationship itself can morph into a much happier, more fulfilling one because one of you is more fulfilled. In thinking about these five fears, fear of stability, fear of vulnerability, fear of ambiguity or even failure, fear of shame, and fear about relationship change, I want to read you a quote, or actually, it's my memory of the quote, so he's in the news a lot right now, but Rudy Giuliani, when he was the mayor of New York, said after 9-11, I thought I knew what courage was. I thought courage was the absence of fear. Now I know that's not true. Courage is being afraid and going on. Again, those are my words. Some speechwriter wrote that for him much more eloquently than that, but I hope that you find your courage. And face those fears that keep you stuck. It can be so well worth it. Today we have an email from a listener in South Africa. It's a little difficult to understand her because there was some background noise. I had to chuckle a little bit because one of her problems is that she says she wants to hang out with her family all the time. And as she was speaking, I could hear her family in the background or it sounded like children, but I'll let her words speak to you. Hi, Dr. Margaret Rutherford. It's Kinesh, all the way down from South Africa. I would just like to thank you for your podcast and just know that it has been helping me a lot in life. I would like to know if you are able to give me some insight on how being raised in a close-knit family can affect you um, when you are in a relationship once you are older and not really knowing how to branch away for example if you go out with someone and then just constantly still want to spend time with your family and your partner not necessarily liking that um, just um, I would like to know like how does that really affect the relationship So I decided I wanted to answer her question by talking a little bit about some what's called family systems theory, which isn't psychology, it's just thinking about how families work, what makes them tick. There was a guy who wrote a book, Dr. Bob Beavers, Robert Beavers, that talks about what's called centrifugal and centripetal families. When you think about centrifugal force, it's force that goes out, right? And centripetal force means the energy is going inward. In centrifugal families, the energy of the family is moving outward, and you're likely to hear things like, you know, you're on your own as soon as you get 18. (laughs) That's what it sounds like in Arkansas, at least. And then in a centripetal family where the energy is going inward, you might hear things like, you know, you can only trust blood. And both families have strengths and weaknesses. A strength of a family whose energy is going out can be independence, The weaknesses can be lack of intimacy and maybe having kids that end with behavior problems or even conduct disorders. In centripetal families, where again the energy is going inward, the strengths of those families are often loyalty and affection, but the problems can be more anxiety and depression and feeling like you're not okay if you don't have very close and very frequent family ties. Now, as you might be able to guess, the extremes of these families can be pretty interesting. And you really kind of want to be in the middle. You want to have a little bit of outgoing energy and one of the little incoming energy. So in addressing her particular issue, I would say certainly it sounds as if your family is more of the centripetal kind. I don't know how culturally based that is in South Africa. Some cultures definitely favor one kind of family structure over another. But if you're concerned about whether this is actually unhealthy, I recommend that you listen to episode 62 Because that's on enmeshment. And enmeshment is families where these ties are too gluey. (laughs) There are just no boundaries between one person and another. Sometimes parents who've created these centripetal families where the energy is going in have great difficulty allowing children to grow up, to launch, and to be on their own. So again, listen to episode 62 and see what you think. Good luck to you. And by the way, Thanks for using the SpeakPipe feature. It's fun to hear your voice. I want to thank all of you so much for being here at the Self Work Podcast. I'm so honored. I've gotten some great ratings and reviews recently, which this podcast is running a little long, so I won't read them, but they mean very much to me. I mentioned at the top of the podcast that I do have a new book out, Perfectly Hidden Depression. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, anywhere where you want it. And from the publishing company itself, New Harbinger. My website is DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com, and that is confidential. I've got a closed Facebook group that I would love for you to be a part of. I do some Facebook Lives there and pretty regularly talk with people that are supporting one another in their struggles. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. So please keep on leaving me ratings and reviews wherever you listen My heart sings a little bit every time someone says something nice. I do want to address the constructive criticism I got quickly, however. In episode 154, I had said something about having some anxiety and then taking some medication. And I just said I took some meds and I was okay. And his concern was I was advocating for the use of medication with anxiety. The medication I use for my panic attacks from time to time is called a beta blocker. It is not a benzodiazepine, which you can become dependent on both physiologically and emotionally, and I would never mention that nonchalantly at all. It is a serious problem. My mother actually had a prescription drug addiction, so I'm particularly sensitive to this issue. So if I seemed careless or casual about that statement, please know that I did not mean to. Thanks again for listening take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.